Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. That's the core of the gospel. It's simple. It's not works-driven. It's belief-driven, right? It's not about how much you can do for God. It's about what you're willing to turn over to Him, to depend upon Him, to believe in what He's done for you. It is also simple, and yet so many people reject it and choose the more complex that they develop for themselves. Because they want to be the determiners of their spiritual future. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Wow. Who gets included? Anyone who wants to believe. Anyone, ooh, you mean that, that, that drunk down the street? Anyone who wants to believe. You mean that homosexual that, that's been living that, that terrible lifestyle? Anyone who wants to believe. Because God moves into the heart of that person and changes them from the inside out when they believe. He changes us from what we were into what we can become. But he does it. But it begins with belief. For there is no difference Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the justifier. God is the one that imputes righteousness. God is the one that changes the human heart. God is the one who changes the human behavior. God is the one who turns a sinner into, well, I don't know what the term would be, non-sinner? I don't know that that's a good term, you know, but changes the sinner's heart, changes the leper's spots, right, as we sing in that old hymn. John the Baptist believed this. And he's been justified by faith, but he simply didn't live to see this covenant put fully into place and to experience the fullness of what it meant in his own life. But, but as I said before, you and I have. We, we not only know it, but hopefully you've experienced it in your own life. And, and if we're willing to yield to it, that's what makes you and me, who are the least, even greater than John. What a blessing we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, look on at verse 31. It says, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? 
So having drawn attention to John and using the description of John's character as a backdrop, Jesus now begins to contrast the attitudes and the character of the unbelieving world, especially of those who are resisting and rejecting him, most especially drawing a contrast with those who see themselves as having things together spiritually like the Pharisees and the scribes do and the vast majority of the spiritual leadership of Israel did and those who were following him. And although John may have been dealing with a a crisis of faith and dealing with some doubts as a result of his situation and, 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 and the wearing effect it was having upon him, John was in no way, like these people were, John was in no way rejecting or resisting Jesus. John raised questions, but he never did that with the intent of discrediting Jesus in his own heart. He just wanted and needed spiritual reassurance and answers. I hope you understand that God is not troubled by your doubts, and he is not troubled by your questions when you're asking him with a sincere motive. What I mean by that is that, as I pointed out last week, our doubts and questions, they're a normal part of our life, right? It's a normal part of of being a fallen human being in a fallen world, because even on our best days, we can't see things spiritually clearly, let alone see things clearly in the midst of wearying difficulties that we're in the midst of. Remember what Paul says about our spiritual understanding, having limiting constraints as a result of our fallen humanity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Do you ever feel like you're looking in a mirror dimly when it comes to spiritual things? Some days there's such great clarity, and some days it's just like, so tell me again who you are, (laughs) Jesus. Tell me more about what you've done. You know, I I get it, but my mind's having a hard time wrapping around it. it. It's exactly what Paul's talking about. Paul is simply saying that in the constraints of our human flesh, that although we might have moments of tremendous clarity, Most of the time, we have an obscure and imperfect vision of spiritual realities. Our understanding about God and about the things of God can be can be hazy at times. It can be cloudy at times. We can have weak faith. We can have doubts that that arise out of these things. These things aren't in and of themselves spiritual disqualifiers, but they are simply realities of our fallen human flesh, which God is fully aware of. You know, I, I'm always encouraged by passages that I come to, in particular in the Psalms, where it just tells us what God knows about us. Because it just gives comfort in that. I mean, I think of Psalm 78 and verse 39, which reassures us that God knows our human weakness and inability to see clearly all the time. Psalm 78 verse 39 says, For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. He remembers what we are, right? Or Psalm 103, verse 14, where we're told, Psalm 103, verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I am so glad that he knows my frame and remembers it. Not just knows it, but he remembers it. When my doubts arise and my faith is weak, and I want to believe, I have a hard time believing, I'm so grateful that he knows this about me. And yet we also know that God has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can more and more to come to know his mind and his workings and to see more clearly as we learn to depend upon him by faith, right? As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 
verses 13 through 16. First two, uh, first Corinthians two, verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? we have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? Because we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, opening our hearts to it. And yet, the failure of our flesh doesn't negate the reality of what Paul is saying here in this passage, that if our faith is in Christ, we do have God's Spirit dwelling in us, enabling us to see more clearly, and yet in our flesh, we can far too often limit the Spirit's ability to give us that clarity. Our human flesh simply gets in the way of the Spirit's ability to work at times. Bad flesh, right? Praise God, he's going to transform it one day completely. But God knows that, and and, and he doesn't hold that to our account. He remembers that we're but flesh, and he knows our frame, and that we're dust. And I just am personally grateful for that reality. I don't know about you, but I mean, me personally, I am so grateful for that. And yet I do not, nor should any of us want to use that as an excuse. Well, it's just my flesh. No, he's given us power to subdue the flesh, to overcome the flesh, to put to death the old man so that put on the new. He's given us that ability. Our human weakness is a reality, but we've been given power to overcome our human weakness in so many ways. But it's not simply people of weak spiritual clarity that Jesus has in mind here as he finishes that portion. He's not talking to those who want to understand, but their flesh is getting in the way and giving rise to questions and doubts such as John was experiencing, but it's those whose questions and doubts are intentional, right? As I started out by saying to you, God doesn't mind your questions. He doesn't mind your doubts so long as you're asking them with sincerity. That's not who he's talking about or what he's talking about here. He's now addressing this to peoples who are raising questions and expressing doubts in order to resist and to undermine the very message that Jesus is sharing and his authority. And to those people, he will now say this, and we'll leave it at this for next week. We'll come back to this passage. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. You know what? There's not that much left. Do you mind if I finish this this morning? Let's just finish this section, okay? You know, with this statement, Jesus is calling out the hypocrites of the time, right? He's calling out the hypocrisy uh, of these kinds of people, how the very attitudes in regard to both John and Jesus reveal the truth of what verse 30 declared about them. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, They wanted nothing to do with what Jesus had to say. Their questions, the stuff they're throwing out, all has to do with the purpose of discrediting him, undermining, taking away from his authority. Jesus says here that they're playing hypocritical children's games to get around the spiritual accountability 
that they really have to God. You see, John and Jesus came with different approaches to how they lived their lives, right? And how they ministered. John came as what we would call an ascetic, right? And and that meant that he was a man who practiced extreme self-discipline and he abstained from all sorts of pleasures of life in order in his service to the Lord. And And Jesus, on the other hand, was the opposite. He came making himself socially available. He was in the middle of people. He was enjoying the things of life that people enjoyed. And yet Jesus is now pointing out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and, and those like them. And he's saying it's showing. Your hypocrisy is showing because you're rejecting both of us. They accused John of living such an austere and, and separated spiritual lifestyle that it was making him unavailable to the day-to-day experiences of the common man or woman even saying it was an indication that he was possessed demonically that he would do that as the new living translation states verses 32 and 33 it says it this way they complained to their friends we played wedding songs and you didn't dance so we played funeral songs and you didn't weep for john the baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine and you say he's possessed by a demon He's saying, you know, they're pointing at John and they're saying, look at this. He's so separated from people, he can't even relate to them. He doesn't have a good form of spirituality. But then Jesus says, you're turning around and you're making the reverse allegations against me. Even though I've made myself available to the people and I'm experiencing their common human experiences, you self-righteous, God-rejecting leaders are saying of me, Again, in the New Living Translation says that I like the clarity of this. It says, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. You see, you, 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 you point at John and say he's too separate, but you point at me and say I'm too close. To this kind of spiritually self-justifying, self-righteous nonsense, Jesus simply says in verse 35, but wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Of course, Jesus here has in mind the wisdom that's displayed by those who have not rejected either his or John's message that they were both called by God to bring. So you see, these kind of self-righteous hypocrites that are, they're really the ones that are blown about like reeds, right? Jesus starts by asking questions about John. Where'd you come out and see the one blown about like reeds in the wind? These are the ones that are blown around. These people are. It's it's not John and most certainly not Jesus. These self-righteous hypocrites can't make up their minds as to what form of spirituality they find acceptable. It ain't John's, but it can't be Jesus's because they don't know what true spirituality is. They don't know nor do they hold genuine convictions of God about true spirituality. They complained about John because he wasn't living the kind of spiritual and practical life that they thought he should be living. He was too straight. He was too serious. He didn't socialize enough. He couldn't relate to things that most people related to in life. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. But then along comes Jesus, who by all appearances was the opposite of John. He was carefree, seemingly so. He was not really carefree. He was dependent on his father, and that took his cares. And yet we know that even in the garden, he had anxiety so great he wept, you know, and and, and sweat blood drops, you know. 
but but he, he he was carefree in his approach to people and he demonstrated a love for life he enjoyed being with the people hanging out with the people experiencing the things of life that people were experiencing but these hypocrites they then turned around and complained that he was too loose that he was a glutton that he was a drunk that he associated with the wrong crowd of people not displaying spirituality as they defined it so to jesus they said we mourn to you and you didn't weep to all of this hyper spiritual hypocritical nonsense jesus simply says that these guys are a generation with no spiritual spine in them none whatsoever nor any truly spiritual understanding or conviction even though they tried to present themselves as spiritually superior to both john and jesus they rejected nothing that was truly spiritual because they didn't know what they really believed they were rejecting everything other than what they wanted to believe personally any other form of spirituality than their own was ruled out as being wrong and since neither john or jesus conformed to their ways they rejected both of them folks people have not changed (laughs) again there are a lot a lot of people like this in our world today spiritual hypocrites and i'm not just referring to religious hypocrites but to people who in general who really don't have a clue as to what they believe nor do they have a a foundation in real truth for what they believe but people who simply know what they don't want to believe right that's their religion what i don't want to believe not what i believe what i don't want to believe these are folks who will play all sorts of childish word games role games right saying anything that will enable them to avoid the truth while making themselves feel spiritually okay in the process. In some cases, even making themselves feel spiritually superior. But the truth is that they don't know the truth because they have no desire to know the truth. You have to have a desire for truth to know the truth. You can't know it without that desire. They're, 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 they're more than just spiritually confused and shallow, but these are people who have no spiritual core in them, no spiritual backbone to support them. All they really want is a religious system that caters to the kind of life and the self-pleasing form of spirituality that they want to live. These are folks who will oftentimes argue spiritual minutia with you. You know, how many angels on the head of a pin? kind of argument how many angels does it take how many fingers does it take for an angel to hold up a boulder you know the big question they'll come at you they'll ask you questions like well you know what if you can only answer this question for me they'll sound sincere if you can only answer this question for me then i could truly believe and and receive what it is you're saying about jesus and about redemption for some the question will be this but if we need to accept jesus in order to be saved what about all those aborigines in the deep dark jungles and the recesses where the gospel hasn't gone. But even in asking in their minds, they've already, they're already thinking, gotcha. You see, it wasn't designed with a sincere question. There's not a problem with a sincere question, but it's a question designed to undermine because they don't want to believe what it is that you've shared with them. And they're asking, gotcha. You can't explain that, can you? That's the thinking. You can't explain that. Therefore, I'm off the hook personally for having to accept the gospel message that you're living in front of me and bringing to me. For others, it's it's contrasting questions like, I'm so confused by all of the different religious beliefs and practices, even within Christianity. You know, I noticed that the Baptists practice their faith this way, but but you guys over here at Calvary Chapel, you're doing it differently. And, and can you help me understand? But again, in their thinking, they're already with the gotcha. Gotcha. You're not going to be able to answer my question on that. They aren't asking to know. 
They're asking to justify a self-developed position that they hold spiritually, which has neither the basis or foundation in scriptural truth, nor do they really want to know and understand what the truth really is. It's all about creating confusion in order to avoid the truth. To all of that, I will simply say what Jesus, in essence, is saying in this passage. Okay, go ahead, play your children's games. Go ahead and play your children's games. Make your conflicting arguments in order to avoid genuinely confronting the truth if you want. But here is truth. You are eventually going to find that no matter what games you play, it won't change the truth. And you won't escape it forever no matter what games you play. You will be held accountable for the truth. In Matthew's account of this dialogue, he records some final words of Jesus to the people that are engaging in that kind of hypocritical gamesmanship, words that I think are very sobering and worth heeding. He says this, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Matthew 11 and verse 20, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus tells that crowd that because of that kind of hypocritical gamesmanship that they were engaging in, that it will be worse for them in the end than it will be for some of the most sinful cities in all of biblical history. Now think about that. Jesus saying that it will be worse for Capernaum than for Sodom. Huh? What's he saying? Just this. Greater revelation means greater accountability. Greater revelation means greater accountability. Sodom and Gomorrah were some of the most sinful cities in all of history, and they were judged for their sinful rebellion against God. But the people of Sodom and Gomorrah never had what the people of Capernaum had. God in the flesh dwelling among them, preaching and teaching and showing them righteousness and the way to righteousness and to God. Unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus was in these cities teaching spiritual truth to them and proving his authority and backing it up. And as a result, these cities, these people had been given greater revelation of truth than Sodom and Gomorrah ever had. But with greater revelation of truth comes greater accountability. Jesus saying that one day, whether it will be the people of these cities or the self-righteous leaders that he's now talking to, they'll be completely without excuse and they'll be held accountable in a far greater way. No matter what games they might have tried to play to escape the truth and their accountability to it, it won't wash with God in the end. So I'll leave you with this today. When that person comes to you, with the gamesmanship kind of stuff, you know, those arguments designed to get the focus off of their own lives, their own accountability to receive the gospel of Jesus, you need to simply tell them, although you don't know all of the answers to every question that they might raise, what you do know is what the Bible declares to be true in regard to Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, and what he requires. Simply share Jesus' word with them. Tell them the truth about Jesus and warn them that the truth is not subjective. It's not debatable. Truth is truth. They can choose to reject the truth that you're sharing with them. That's up to them. 
But their rejecting of the truth will not change the truth. Tell them that one day there will be a moment when God will hold them accountable for the truth that he has sent you to share with them. You're standing there with them as Jesus was standing before the crowds in his day, sharing truth. And in that day, all of the arguments that they could pose and make won't matter because God will be holding them personally accountable for that truth. And he won't play their games. He won't play their games. You know, although I have some very plausible answers to the accountability deflecting question that people raise about the unreached natives on the far reach islands and places like that, most often the response I give to people when they throw that out is this, sir, ma'am, God is a just God, and he will never do anything unfair to anyone. But the issue right now isn't those people in that remote jungle or on that island you have had the truth of the gospel presented to you right here and right now. And, and I'm standing with you presenting it. And as such, when you appear before God one day, he won't entertain your questions about the unreached natives, but he will be concerned with you and what you did with the truth of Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, if you've rejected Jesus, if you've rejected his offer of redemption as presented in the gospel, then it will be more tolerable for those natives who never heard than it will be for you in the day of judgment if you rejected Jesus Christ. That's the answer. It doesn't mean we can't talk about the sincere question when people are asking it in a sincere way. But again, oftentimes people are not asking it with sincerity. They're trying to get out from underneath accountability. I know because I used to throw that question out to get out from underneath accountability before I had to come to Jesus meeting with Jesus you know, and came to faith in him. So in that day of accounting, all again, all those children's games, unbelieving men and women in this world that played, they're going to be over. And, and, and wisdom will truly be justified by all her children. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.